This is the ED ECMO podcast with Joe Belezzo, Zach Shiner, and me, Scott Weingart. Hey there, pumpheads. Today, I want to talk about VV ECMO. It's what you use for respiratory failure. Uh, we're going to do kind of a bookend show. We'll talk about the beginnings and the end of VV ECMO, and then in future shows, we'll discuss the middle the actual uh, time the patient is on the pump. But today we'll talk about who to initiate VV ECMO on and uh, when to start taking it off. So I'm with Dan Herr, one of my favorite people <laughs> at the Shock Trauma Center, the director of cardiac surgical ICU here, and I think the man when it comes to ECMO. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today, is who gets VV ECMO and when do we stop? So Dan, just say hello to the audience here. Hello audience here. Fantastic. <laughs> Dan, what would be the ideal consult call for you for someone, uh, let's say at an outside hospital, they have a sick patient with bad lungs, what do you want to hear when they call you and say this may be a VV ECMO candidate? I want to hear that they've done everything within ARGENET to make the patient better. I want to hear that they've uh, tried low tidal volume to a maximum 30 plateau. I want to hear that they're on 100% or close to it. I want to hear that they've prone the patient, um, and I might want to even hear if they've tried to paralyze the patient. I don't know. Um, and then I, um, I need to know um, what their tidal volumes are, and if they're starting to edge out of the ARGENET um, vent settings. Um, I prefer them to be within 48 to 72 hours of their onset of disease. Um, I'm not sure any earlier would make any difference. Um, and I prefer them to have a disease, an ARDS, that is um, resulted from a primary lung problem rather than a distant lung problem. So if they had a bad belly, uh, surgical mishap, and then subsequently developed ARDS, that might be less likely for you to say go. At a university, it'd be probably we still say go, but it would not be the ideal candidate for a place that um, does just routine ECMO. Fair enough. Now, you mentioned a time course here. Now, we obviously don't want to take them three hours into their course. They might get better. And yet, we certainly don't want them nine days out. What is the golden window for considering ECMO? Boy, if I knew that, I'd <laughs> <laughs> if I knew that, I'd have a crystal ball. It appears, and you look around the rest of the world, and you look at all the other centers, most of us would prefer somebody within seven days of their initial entry. If it's over if over seven days, it doesn't seem to work out too well for us. Um, if you look at all the different criteria, you look at the Italian criteria, you look at England's criteria, you look at Australia's criteria, it really varies, but it's somewhere between seven and 10, and most people won't go over 10 days. Fair enough. And it would be nice to get them within the five, right? I think so. I think that's the window. Um, we've gotten them on both ends, um, and we seem to have done okay. I think I really do believe that the, the bigger issue is certainly the, the cause of the disease. Do you calculate Murray scores or anything like that, or are you just no. listening to the numbers and no, go with your we, clinical knowledge? No, I, I think, you know, some places, even I think even our criteria here at one time had Murray scores down, but I, I really don't think there's any evidence at all that any of the, the different parameters that you can use, the lung injury scores, um, make any difference in how we're going to have an outcome because nobody's looked at it. Nobody Fair enough. Knows. Now, if a hospital can't prone, they just tell you, our nurses won't do it, they haven't been trained, would you take a patient to an ECMO center to try therapies with the idea that they may work and then not be an ECMO candidate? Is that a valid criteria? So am I a fan of the CSER trial or CESAR? Yes, yes, that would be what our I'm British friends to. call it. Um, yes, I would. I would bring them. 
because I think, uh, I, I must say, I, I've become a proning advocate, um, but I, I do believe that patients should get every shot they can. Um, ECMO is not without its morbidities, um, and certainly I think that now proning is probably part of our algorithm before we go on ECMO. Um, some patients you can't prone, uh, but I think nowadays I think most of us will take the patient, try to prone them, put them in um, the ARDSnet. As you, as you well know, we, we get sent a lot of patients who ARDSnet has not been practiced on completely, um, and those patients do get the opportunity. The other, the, other interesting, I don't, the other interesting thing is I think most patients deserve a bronch. Um, we have had um, certainly instances where we've, we've had people brought to us with quote-unquote ARDS and then we, we bronch them and find that they've just got tons of mucus plugging and yep. we can suck them out and they do fine and off we go. Trial of APRV or no? Controversial question. Shock trauma. APRV, and I work at shock trauma, so I have to say a trial of APRV is probably worth it. Um, I think APRV is very much like all the other um, modalities we use for refractory ARDS. I think you could put APRV in the same category as nitric or Flolan or anything else that you want to try in life. Um, I think it's worth a shot. I don't think um, I have avoided um, ECMO because of APRV. Um, and I actually think I have, well, maybe sometimes we've avoided ECMO because of APRV. But I'm, I'm not sure. Um, we could talk for hours about whether or not that's lung protective therapy, and we won't do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the flu season we just had. It was a very bad flu season, and you guys had a bunch of ECMO patients. How'd they, how'd they turn out? Yeah, they turned out really well. <laughs> I am, I'm pretty amazed, actually. Um, in 2009, when the flu season came along, um, all of us were kind of attempting ECMO on these patients, and and we weren't really as confident with our ECMO skills, I don't think, and, and uh, our outcomes were pretty bad, and the main reason in 2009 was that we were waiting to the very, very last minute. Um, I remember many of our patients had uh, commitment, um, bacterial infections, uh, just, just horribly sick patients, shock. Um, this time I think we decided that we were gonna go with our usual rules, that if they didn't make it, they became refractory ARDS as, you know, on maximum therapy, um, we would put them on ECMO quicker. And this year, I don't think I'm saying anything wrong, but we're at least above a 90% survival. Yep. Um, which is just dumbfounding to me. When I look at the patients that we put on, I mean, we're a tertiary, and sometimes people say quaternary center. Um, those patients were really sick by the time they hit our door, but almost all of them were within the seven day mark. Um, which I think was really pretty important. Um, they did really well. Now, you guys have a lot of experience with ECMO. You go into the CSICU, it's, it's not even, no one bats an eyelash about another patient going mm -hmm. on ECMO. And so that leads to a very experienced nursing staff, a very experienced respiratory care staff. Do you think the results you've been seeing are translatable to places that are only gonna do a handful of cases a year for PV? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, a bunch of us have just uh, signed on to a document to define what a, um, a good ECMO center is. Um, and to be honest with you, I don't remember the absolute number, but I think it was more than 20 ECMOs a year that I think we said uh, would probably be a good ECMO center, but it might be a little bit high. Um, <laughs> I proselytize, and I may be wrong, and I probably am, but I proselytize that, you know, ECMO is probably the CRT of the lungs in the future. 
Um, I may be way over the edge, but um, as easy as it's gotten, I think that with a little bit of training, um, it could be done in a, in a, in a hospital um, that at least has, um, uh, probably should have at least perfusion, should probably have perfusionists on board. Um, I, I do believe that there'll be a, a point in the future where patients come into a medical ICU and we put the catheters in and or we'll come into the emergency room and we put the catheters in and you don't need a surgeon. You might want a surgeon as a surgical backup. I think that's always a good idea. But I think a lot of places have proven that you can do this, put the patient on, take them up to the ICU, leave them sit there for a while. As we say, let them marinate um, and see how their lungs heal. Well, that brings us to our next point of conversation, mm -hmm. which is the lungs are healing. You think the patient's getting better. Uh, what's your weaning strategy? How does it work? When do you start and how do you do it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so <laughs> what's our weaning strategy? Let me, let me get to the point when do you decide to wean. Yeah. I guess that's I guess the bigger issue. I, I really think, and I, I do not have a crystal ball in this, but I really do think that um, the whole idea of ECMO is to rest the lungs. I think it's the ultimate lung rest therapy. If there's any other way to look at ECMO, that's probably the best way to look at it. So when we go on ECMO, I feel that healing time is really important, and I just use basic common sense. Most people heal things in five to seven days. Uh, we give antibiotics from seven to ten days. So I figure a person needs a good seven, five to seven days of lung rest. So I will not play with my ventilator probably for the first five days. I will put them on absolute the lowest. I'll put them on four um, cc's per keg tidal volume. I will put their plateau pressure, whatever it comes up to, with that low number. Um, we'll put them on as low FiO2 as we can and we'll let them sit for five or seven days and then we'll start thinking about bringing them back. Um, some people will, during that time, stretch the lung. I don't think there's a reason to stretch the lung. I do think that it's very important and we've changed our algorithm since 2009 to this year. And one of the things we did this year was every patient got proned. I'm pretty sure, maybe not every, but majority of the patients got proned. And I think that's really important and it's a simple thing, I think simply that if you prone the patient, the snot comes out. Um, if you don't prone them, then you're suctioning them and you might not get to the airways that you need to get to. So our whole concept of proning is to keep the lungs at least clean um, while we're letting them rest. Um, and I think that's probably the key. Um, we used to bronch patients every day. Um, we don't do that near as much. And we see some very nice looking x-rays, even though we're only using tidal volumes of four some people white out, that's fine, as long as their, their bronchioles are clean, it's fine. So we do that for four or five days, but I think it's really important to remember you're trying to keep the mucus out. You don't want them to get a pneumonia on top of their flu. Um, and then we, then we kind of say, okay, is it time to bite the bullet? And um, we haven't even talked about sedation in ECMO because that's probably harder than ECMO itself. Um, but we usually try to get the patient at least, if we'll take the mental aspects out of this, but we'll try to start about five or seven days into it. We'll, um, what I usually do is, which a lot of people don't do, is I will actually use my APRV or I'll use some distending pressures um, and try to recruit lung as I start. And usually at that point, I'll recruit the lung, I'll put them on some ventilator setting that I think would be normal for that patient. I don't think four mils per kg is a normal ventilatory setting. I think most, if you look at most ventilators, we run somewhere between six and eight. Yep. If you get much lower than that, you get shunting and hypoxia. So we'll put them on 
uh, what we think is a normal bench setting, as long as their plat pressure isn't above 30. And then we will uh, see how they look. And we will we just disengage the ECMO. We just recirculate. We turn off the oxygen, turn off the sweep, and let them just sit there. And usually the first one's a failure. Um, one of the reasons it's a failure usually is the patient starts hyperventilating themselves and look like crap, to be perfectly honest. Um, and then we start working on trying to get their brain back. Um, our biggest problem in ECMO is when patients come in the door where they've been in most places, they're either paralyzed, sedated, over-sedated, over-narcotized, um, because they're trying to get the patient to tolerate the vent. And then we run into the problem where the patient's lungs are so bad that when we try to wake them up, um, I call this the pulmonary neuro connection. Um, for some odd reason, my oxygenation's fine, I'm on ECMO. PO2 is okay, CO2 is okay, but I cannot get them to breathe normally. And I call it kind of a drowning syndrome, where patients' lungs are just so bad, they're not expanded, um, and the patients think they're drowning, they hyperventilate, and they get sedated more and more and more. And that's another whole discussion about how we sedate people on ECMO. So, weaning, set five to seven days out, stretch them out, um, put them on normal vet settings, turn off your oxygen, turn off your sweep, see how they do, and usually it takes two to three days. If they can make 24 hours, we actually let people go that long on sweep. The only reason we do that is because if we lose ground somewhere in between, we still have our cannulas in. Yep. Um, bad move, take your cannulas out and have to put them back in. Um, so pretty much that's what we do, and then if they look good, we decannulate and off we go. I think an important thing to remember about decannulation, um, when we decannulate, um, we do look for clot, um, and we put the patients back on heparin until we know that they don't have clot, and probably about 50% of the patients have a pretty significant clot in one of their major vessels. And you so just we'll watch those and yeah. keep them anticoagulant. Yeah. The question is, when do you stop? And we don't have that answer yet. Fair enough. Yeah. Now, let's say you did the first research trial and they did look like crap, and so you, you put your, your sweep back on. Uh, when do you try again? Next day. Okay, Next 24 day. hours later. You know, it's sort of like the same thing in my mind as a T-piece trial. Yep. You know, once a day is enough. The GM article kind of convinced us all of that. Well, not everybody, but uh, you know, it's it, it. To me, it's no hurry at that point. Um, it it. And again, I still think it's more of a struggle with their brain than it is the actual um, getting them used to breathing again, and they're still on a ventilator. And how good does the gas have to be for those research? How good trials? does the gas have to be? Good question. I I want them probably fifty percent or less FiO two, and I want the PaO two somewhere above seventy. Fair enough. You know, so I have some room. I, I look at it as, you know, where am I comfortable when a person's on a ventilator? I think some people want the person perfect before they take them off the ECMO. I don't think that's the purpose of ECMO. I think if you can get them to ARGENET at a reasonable number or normal vent settings, get the ECMO out because um, our experience seems to be once you start getting out to that 14-day mark, you start seeing the morbidities of ECMO, um, bleeding, just funny things happen, clots. You know, it can be anything. So we try to get them out. I'll ask you one last question, and I'll leave you alone, sir. Uh, my no what I've noticed when I've uh, rotated with you folks is um, you're still doing VV with the two-cannula method. What's your feelings on the Avalon? Is, it, <laughs> is there problems with it? How come you guys haven't adopted that whole horse? So, so we haven't because we've had problems with the Avalon. I don't know why we've had problems with the Avalon. I don't know. I think one of the issues we have with the Avalon is I think that people are... Again, being a tertiary center, we get people a little bit late, so their lungs are really shot. So we need a lot more flow. And the Avalon, you can only go so big. Um, size might count in this situation. 
Um, we um, have a terrible time with our patient population keeping it in position. Um, I don't think we've tried a lot of different ways. Um, a little hint, if you want to use the Avalon, um, what I usually do is put a SVO2 swan. Yeah, I know swans are unheard of these days. But I put an SVO2 swan in and actually um, been able to measure the SAT and the PA artery. I know right away if my ECMO catheter is being out of position because the SATs will drop below 90 in my pulmonary artery, which they shouldn't yep. be 90. So I'll do that. But um, I think well, we've been, we just think that it's, number one, much easier to put in. Uh, the, there are, you just, I just saw a paper where if you use TEE and TTE at the same time, that uh, the ECMO catheter can be put in, the Avalon catheter can be put in um, pretty accurately. Um, sometimes we don't have time for that. Um, everybody knows how to put a pretty big vein line in, so it's much easier to start. Um, and the controversy is that, you know, people think that they can't get up and walk around with ECMO catheters in your groin, and you can. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. I even still today, after us doing um, 78 ECMOs last year, um, I still have trouble convincing my nurses that the patient can actually sit on the edge of the bed. They are, they are, they are reinforced, they don't kink. Um, and if you have a good tie job, that's the important thing, um, you can get the patient out of bed. So I'm not sure the Avalon's worth the trouble every day. Um, people have to keep their heads still. It's, 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 it's pretty much of a pain. Fair enough. I, much a pain. I can't thank you enough, sir. This You're is welcome. fantastic. You're welcome. Good.